Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Wes Hall. Wes is the executive chairman and founder of Kingsdale Advisors, We Shall Investments, and the Black North Initiative. Wes is also a dragon on CBC's Dragon's Den, author of No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot, and serves as a board member of the Sick Kids Foundation, Pathways to Education, the Black Academy, is a member of the Board of Governors at Huron University, and was the 2022 Canadian Business Leader of the Year. In this episode, we discuss Wes coming to Canada from Jamaica in 1985, from his job doing a paper route to his big break on Bay Street, how he started Kingsdale Advisors, how he recruited his initial team, how he landed his first big deal, an $18 billion takeover of Falcon Bridge by Extrata, the importance of luck in business and how you can create it, why he started the Black North Initiative due to the barriers he faced as a black man on Bay Street, the barriers that BIPOC people in Canada face and how we can remove them, and the importance of how to build relationships for the long term. Please enjoy my conversation with Wes Hall. You came to Canada as a teenager from Jamaica. What was that experience like for you? Was it a big culture change? I'm sure coming to Canadian winters wasn't that fun, but what what was that like? I here? came here September 27th, 1985. Fortunately for me, it wasn't winter. It wasn't winter. And uh, and I remember when I came off the plane and uh, Pearson Airport, we drove on the 401. I've never seen a highway that beautiful in my entire life. And I'm like, this is amazing. You had five, six lanes and you got two, you know, you know, east and westbound. And you got all these cars. And we drove to this uh, neighborhood called Malvern in Scarborough. And, uh, and Malvern at the time in the neighborhood, it was just a newly built subdivision. And um, all these, a few houses, but it's all dirt and dust, right? But I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And my dad pulled up in this big car, they called it Betsy. And all of us kids were in it because I met my siblings for the first time. They came to the airport with us and we're all there. 
got out and we went into this house and they go, this is your rule. And I looked outside and if you, you know, September in Canada is beautiful because the trees are changing colors and it's like, you look at it and the leaves are falling and it was just so romantic looking at it, just romantic. And then, and then the, the leaves all went away. That doesn't happen in Jamaica. The leaves just don't go away. You know, the, the leaves just fell off the trees and then all of a sudden there are no leaves on the trees. And I'm like, what is going on in this place? Right. And I remember, you know, telling my siblings, like, what, what the heck? The trees are all dead. Some the trees just died up like that all of a sudden. And they go, it's fall. The leaves fall off and fall. I'm like, what? Uh, and then winter came, man. Evan, I've never seen anything like it. My first snowfall was beautiful. It was like, wow, this is amazing. And then it kept coming and it got colder and colder and the, and the winter. And I'm like, I can't go outside. I literally told my family that I couldn't go outside because it's too cold and I'm not going to school because I can't walk to school. It was a 10 minute walk. And so that was my introduction to Canada, the beauty of the, the fall and then the beauty of the winter that turns into an endless winter. And it was the longest winter of my life. I was doing some reading and I saw that you kind of yeah. paper out. You're in hospitality, retail jobs, all while getting married, having kids. And ultimately you land up at the legal division at CanWest. Um, just talk to me a bit through that process. It sounds like a challenging time to be managing all of that while working and, and have that job. I got my first paper out in that winter when I came here. Uh, so... You know, you got to understand that you went from, I can't go outside to now delivering the Toronto star door to door. And, uh, and, and, and back in the day, you know, they deliver the star to you in your garage and Saturdays were terrible because you have to put all these flyers in and the paper was like a phone book. It was so sick. And so we had a cart that I had to care, uh, pull, but on Saturdays, you can only put like about 15 newspapers in that cart, right? During the week, you can put like hundred, but because the Saturday star was so thick, like, you know, I had to make a ton of trip and I used to hate Saturdays because I had to make a ton of trips back and forth to go through the neighborhood to deliver my star, my Toronto star. And I had to deliver it at a certain time because people are peculiar in terms of, uh, you know, when they read their newspaper, for example. They don't want to get their newspaper delivered at one o'clock on Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. They want to get it as soon as they get out, they get their morning coffee, they get their newspaper. So I had to get up really, really early. And I was in high school really, really early to actually get them their newspaper. And, uh, and, but that taught me a lot because it taught me work ethic very, very early, right? Didn't matter how cold it was. I have a duty and responsibility to people, my customers. Because if I do my job really well, we rely on tips. And so Christmas time was amazing for us because we would go to collect and they would give us like a nice, you know, you know, $20 bill. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. It motivates me to do even a better job in the future. So over time, that kind of discipline allowed me to go, what else is there? What else is there? But I, I decided that I wanted to, um, you know, I was just looking for jobs. I looked for work. I left my parents, my, my, my dad and my stepmom's home when I was uh, at, in my senior high school at 18. And I go, okay, fine. I need to get a job. And the first job I got was really in a, a restaurant, Hurley's restaurant to be a dishwasher. 
And again, that job was pretty terrible too, because, you know, I was, uh, you know, water coming up to my ankle. Uh, it was hot water. I, the restaurant was busy. So I had to be washing all the time. And my boss would come in and say, I'm not doing it fast enough. And, uh, I just kept hustling and hustling and hustling. Ultimately, all that stuff led to me getting on Bay street, starting in the mail room, saw an amazing opportunity to go. I want to be on Bay street and I want to do more on Bay street to now allowing myself to get educated and then to take on that opportunity at Canwest Global to be the right hand to the general counsel, which was really at the end of the day, Evan, it's a job that I shouldn't have got. I didn't have the expertise to do it because I didn't have the experience doing that job. Well, this person gave me an opportunity. And as I talked about the work ethic, the work ethic that I had from delivering the Toronto Star to being a dishwasher, to now go, I'm going to take on this job with the same intensity that I took on those jobs. It really allowed me to be successful in that job and ultimately lead me to where I'm at, I'm at today. But it starts with that work ethic. And then ultimately you go off to start Kingsdale. I'd really like to learn about more about the Genesis story. What was the opportunity that you saw in the market at the time? What did you really want to build with Kingsdale? I'm always just very curious of like that kind of first step, like that zero. I was working for a New York based head office company that had a Canadian division that provides what they called proxy solicitation services to public companies, meaning that every public company, if your stock is on the stock, if your company's tree, trees on the stock exchange, every year you must have a shareholders meeting and every year you must see a vote from those shareholders and those shareholders vote by proxy. They just send in a piece of paper, they bail it in or they go online and, uh, and they vote at the meeting. And sometimes those companies have specific, specific things on their agenda that it's important that the shareholders vote in favor of them, whether it be a stock option plan, they have to vote for the directors every year. And so they would like to have someone to call their shareholders to say, please vote this way on this particular item on the agenda. So that's called proxy solicitation. So the firm was working with, that's what they did. And that's what their sweet spot was. But after a while working with them, I go, hmm, you know, I think there might be an opportunity to provide a different level of service because there's these group of shareholders developing in the U.S. called activist shareholders. And what they try to do is to disrupt management, is to essentially take advantage of, you know, shareholders' lack of responsibility when it comes to the voting process. And they go, because shareholders don't want to vote, we're going to take uh, maybe 20% of the company. And, and because shareholders don't vote, our 20% is going to have an outsized vote in terms of what the outcome of the meeting should be, right? So I go, if those guys are doing it in the U.S., they're going to do it in Canada too. So I went to my, my, my boss and I said, we should build that here in Canada. We should build a business where we can advise companies dealing with those issues. And my boss said, well, it doesn't exist in, in Canada. It's never going to happen in Canada. And then I decided I'm going to build my own firm to do that. And so, but getting financing, any founder knows this, right? It's tough to get financing for your idea, especially when your idea doesn't exist in the market. You know, 
and it's interesting because if you have an idea that exists in the market already and you get, and you, you try to get funding, what do you hear? Well, it's already exists. Somebody's already doing it. But when you have an idea that doesn't exist, what do you hear? Well, it doesn't exist. Nobody's doing it. Then there's a reason why nobody's doing it. Maybe it's a bad idea. And so it's, you, you take it on both ends when you're an entrepreneur. So nobody would finance me. I literally went home and convinced my wife to mortgage our house. And um, she did. We did. Got $100,000. And that's how I started this business, Kingsdale Advisors. And uh, Kingsdale, you know, out of the gates, we became successful. Out of the gates. Um, and then activism started in this country. And we were the only game in town to do that. And we just kept on getting business after business after business. And it's 20 years later, and we're still the number one firm in Canada in that, in that space. You mentioned there kind of the difficulties of raising capital. What about bringing, like building a team, yeah. building a culture at Kingsdale? How did you get those initial people to maybe, maybe they were at a very comfortable job? How did you get them to come on and, and join you? Was, what was some kind of tactics? Of a black man on Bay Street. It's not a lot like me on, on Bay Street, okay? So, so I took advantage of that. I had a website that had my picture on it as the chairman of the firm and the CEO. And uh, I would um, get calls from people. They wanted to meet. And at the time, I answered my own phone. Every morning, I, I usually get into the office between 6.30 to 7 a.m. in the morning. And the phone would ring. And I pick up my phone, it's Wes Hall. And I go, Mr. Hall, I'm new to Canada and uh, I'm looking for a job. And, uh, but nobody will hire me. Can I meet with you? I'm like, sure, come on in. And, uh, and I would get these amazing talent that were new to the country, but here's what they would, were, would hear all the time. People tell me that I have no Canadian experience. So think about it, right? I was building an advisor firm that was able to advise companies and think outside the box in terms of how people approach dealing with their investors. And then I would have somebody who used to be an investment banker in a different country and they came to Canada and they want to be an investment banker in Canada. And they're told time and time again from all these banks, because most of the investment bankers are at banks. You don't have any Canadian experience. So all of a sudden they can't be inve an investment banker anymore. So they would come to me and I would go, well, you know what? You can advise companies because you've done that in your, in your home country. I get a sense as to the kind of work that they've done. And I go, you're hired. And I would get these amazingly talented people that were new Canadians. And I remember somebody came into my office once and said that client and said, this looks like the United Nations here because I was getting people from all over the world, from China, from Korea, from Japan, from Africa, from the Caribbean, all over the world. And they were brilliant. They were talented. And they built my firm to the firm that it is today. I did not have to compete for talent because nobody wanted those people. And I got them and they made this firm very, very successful. Unlike today, um, you know, we're, we're, we're competing for talent, but guess what? Yes, we're competing, but that talent is still there. We're still, those people are still hearing that they're new to Canada and they have no Canadian experience. That's the reason why you have engineers driving Ubers, 
doctors driving taxis because they have all that experience and nobody would hire them in Canada. So as an entrepreneur, to me, that's the sweet spot. You don't have to compete for talent. You just got to look at the, in the right places in order for you to find the talent you're looking for. You mentioned competing for talent there. How about competition within the business? You mentioned earlier, you know, you were very unique with your strategy and what you were focused on and no one else was doing that at the time. Well, Did competitors start to kind of flock to it as the deal, as the industry oh, started to pick up here in Canada? And how did you deal? Yeah, you deal so we went from, so the firm I left was essentially us and them, right? And unfortunately um, for me, when I left that company, it was bought. And, uh, and then they had a, a golden handcuff with the, the senior management team for about five years, meaning that they couldn't leave the firm to start their own competing firm for that period of time. And so I had really five years to build the business into the strongest that I could build it. Uh, and because I won't have to worry about them leaving like I left to set up a competitive firm to mine. And so ultimately when their golden handcuff was off, every single one of those people left to start their own competing firm. Today, we have six firms doing what I do today. We went from two when I started, uh, and we were the dominant one to now six. We're still dominant, uh, today. So how did I deal with competition when competition eventually started to come? You just have to build your team better. You just have to innovate a little bit more. We kept on changing the way we did business, the type of services were provided to our clients, and we kept on upgrading our talent. And the competition just couldn't catch up. They still can't because we just kept on disrupting that business and so they kept on following what we've done. So we would make a change in a, in a particular area. And within a year or two, they follow us. After that, once they catch up to us, we just make another change. So they just kept on following and following and following in terms of just how we describe our services, how we communicate with our clients, all the different things. We just kept on disrupting the industry. And that's the reason why after 20 years of doing this, we're still the number one firm in Canada. We just don't take it for granted that we're number one, that's great. Eventually when you build something great and you're the first person to start it, eventually you're gonna have copycats. If you build something great, somebody will go, look at that, look at what Wes did. I can do it too. And, and, and people just kept on following that. And to me, we look at it as a compliment. We look at it as a badge of honor. The more people out there talking about our services, the better it is for me. Because when I was just by myself doing it, People are saying, why should, I, why should I engage you when nobody else is saying, I need a service like this? So when you have like five or six firms saying you really need this, then the company goes, okay, who is the best at it? And then when they realize Kingsdale is the best at it, they're going to seek us out because they're using, so I'm using my competitors as a way to advertise my services, but I have to be really good at what I do to benefit from that. If I'm not as good, I'm not going to benefit from them advertising our industry, right? So when they go out there and say, you know, you need to hire a firm like mine, the company would say, okay, great. I'm going to see who else is out there doing this. And that always leads them to us. And we generally get the mandate as a result of just how good we are. I'd like to talk about, you know, kind of maybe your first big break. I don't know if you, yep. if you would refer to it as that, but kind of the Falcon Bridge deal. 
and it was pretty significant yeah. at the time, $18 billion takeover. How did that deal come about? How did you like uncover that? Did you just meet someone <laughs> on the subway going then to downtown Toronto? How did you It's funny that you mentioned that because it's almost similar, okay? Um, you know, luck, you need luck in business. A lot of people go, it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I work hard and I'm smart and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of hard work and smart people out there that just haven't gotten the breaks because they just don't get those chance meetings or find themselves in situations where they can go, oh, let me see what I take, how I can take advantage of this. So that deal in particular, this was 2006. And at the time you may recall like nickel price, commodities prices were through the roof. Like nickel prices was through the roof and everybody was buying everything. And they were just paying an arm and a leg for everything. And so we were not a big firm because we, I started the firm in 2003. So that's three years later. So we're a young firm. And you got to appreciate the fact that the firm that I left, they were in business since 1934. So a deal like that, I have no business getting that deal because it was a three-year-old firm competing with a firm against a firm that was in business since 1934. Okay. And so here I am as a, as you know, we had like, you know, maybe 10 people at the most here at the shop. And, uh, I was talking to my general counsel at the time when the deal was announced and I go, I'm going to get that deal. I said to my general counsel and he said to me, there's no way that you're going to get that deal. There's just no way. They're not going to hire a firm our size to get that deal. And uh, I was downstairs going for coffee and I ran into a lawyer who said, you know, hey, Wes, um, you and I should have coffee. You know? And I'm like, sure. And we went to coffee together. And he's like, well, I, I, I got engaged on this really big file. And I need, uh, uh, I'm thinking maybe there could be a role for you on that. Um, I'm, my client is coming into town next week. I'm going to set up a meeting for you to meet my client. And at the time, the deal wasn't yet, you know, the deal was they're talking about it. It was rumored that it was going to happen, but it wasn't official, right? So he couldn't tell me who his client was. He just says he's going to meet the meeting. And then next thing you know, I find myself in a room with the executives of Extrata and my, and my lawyer friend. And it turned out that it's them making a bid, going to make a bid for Falcon Bridge. And they go, we're going to hire you to help us on this deal in that meeting. And then the CFO said to me, pulled me aside and he said, I bet you're wondering why we're hiring you to do this deal. I said, yes, I am. He said, listen, our firm is run like a small business. We're a very small team and we believe in hiring people who are nimble, who are entrepreneurial, because that's where success comes from. We want people who are like us to operate on our deals. And we're picking you because of the size of your firm. Could you imagine that? Like I thought it would have been the opposite that they'll go, go for the big firm with New York based head office and all these employees versus a 10 person firm. They chose a 10 person firm because they go, you're going to be hungrier than the big guys. Now we talk about the luck part. If I didn't go downstairs that, and I didn't run into that guy at that, at that stage, I probably wouldn't have gotten that deal. 
Okay. So that's where the work luck come in. The hard work was I usually start my day, like I said, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. By 11, uh, you know, 10.30, I kind of feel like I want a tea or something. So I go downstairs to get it. Okay. But if I did start my day at like 9.30, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, I wouldn't really want a tea at that time because I'm taking lunch at noon. Okay. So I would never need to go downstairs to walk around to get a coffee to get me, to get me perked up. That's where the luck and the hard work come in. They, they are together. They're linked. And so that got me the biggest deal in Canadian history. In Canadian history, my name was in the newspaper because nobody believed that Kingsdale would have landed that deal and it put us on the map. You mentioned kind of like luck, serendipity, kind of like, you know, good things happen if you're putting that work in. Do you kind of have a, a process to yeah. create more luck? Like you mentioned they're kind of getting into the office earlier, but is it, you know, going to particular events, meeting certain people? Do you have a process to create yourself more chances at getting well, Listen, when somebody, you often hear, you know, you got to take shots and goal, right? You hear that expression all the time. How do you get shots and goal? You have to create your own opportunities. You do, right? You can't just go, somebody's going to pass the puck to me and I'm going to shoot at the net when they pass it to me. A, you're going to have to be skated in the right direction. You got to be, you got to be fast. You got to know how to handle the puck when you get it. You create your own luck. You create your own opportunity by all those things that you do, the way you prepare for things. So for me, literally, if I just get up in the mornings and, uh, and I just show up in the office and I stay in the office and I just work on my computer, that's going to get me to a certain point. But if I start to now go, I'm going to start to build relationships with people and relationships just building can take all kinds of different form. I could be, I'm going to serve on a charity board. Uh, because I'm going to give back. And then as a result of serving in a charity board, I meet some people who are philanthropic and go, well, wait a minute. I really respect Wes because he's, uh, he's given back. So maybe I, I should work with them in outside of that situation. And you've got to find that wealthy people donate their time. They donate their time on boards and that's where you find them. So what sometimes we do when we're coming up in business, we go, I don't have the time for that. I don't have the time to serve in a not-for-profit board. I'm too busy in my business. But guess what? All your potential investors are on those boards. All your investors. Like look at any large not-for-profit business in this country and look at the board of directors. They're some of the most successful business people in this country. But yet we go, I don't want to sit on that board because all we think about is the time factor that it's going to take us as opposed to the opportunities that it's going to present to us, right? Um, I could be walking down the street and I see somebody that I go, man, that's such and such. And such and such could be the CEO of a certain institution that you feel is untouchable. And you can go, I'm not going to, I'm going to be shy and not say hello. Or you can just walk up and say, hey, Jim, uh, how you doing? I love the work that you do with blah, blah, blah. And then Jim is going to be like, oh, thank you very much. Because Jim appreciate the fact that somebody recognized him and somebody acknowledged the fact that he's doing a good job at a certain bank or a certain institution, right? And then next thing, what do you ask for after that? Hey, could I exchange information with you? A lot of people are shy to do stuff like that. They go, 
I'm going to be put in this personality. I don't want to do that. I am not shy about doing stuff like that, right? I have this amazing contact. Well, we used to call it Rolodex back in the day, but I have a very extensive one because I'm unapologetic about doing that, right? So that's how I create my luck. That's how I create my opportunities because I am not shy about going, hey, I need to get to know this person because either we can do something together or they can help with some of the things that means a lot to me. Like when I started Black Norse, for example, this was started because of my Rolodex, because of the contacts that I have in my system, is because of those chance meetings that I've had with people, is exchanging those phone numbers. And now I needed those people and I was able to call them and say, can you help me in this particular situation? And overwhelmingly, they said, absolutely, we'll help you, Wes. You mentioned Black North there. I'd like to stay on that thread. What is Black North Initiative? Uh, the article I read said you're able to get 300 Canadian CEOs on board very quickly. I'm sure that number is bigger now. But what is the organization focused on? And how do we get more representation in the in business? Like you mentioned earlier, you know, hiring people that were newer to Canada. Like, is, is that one of the hurdles? Like, what are some other things that so need to do better? So Black North was um, started because as a, as a Black man on Bay Street, I was always the older person in a room, right? And uh, my wife and I was at an event last week. And it was an event that was um, to, to, to award, um, you know, the, you know, award of distinction to business leaders. Um, uh, and uh, so it's all very high-end, very successful entrepreneurs and business leaders in the room. There were 700 people in the room, 700 people. And my wife goes, look around and she said, do you know that you're the only black person in this room, Wes? This was, this is September, October, 2023. He said, she said, she said to me, and my wife is white. So she, she, she sees these all the time. She's like, it's, it's still so shocking every time. I get into these situations, I, I still find it shocking that you're the only one in that, in that room. And the question that you, you have to ask yourself is, is it because I'm special? Because it certainly isn't. I'm an immigrant to this country that came from object poverty. And yet within 38 years of me coming to this country, I find myself in a room like that. There's nothing special about me. But there are people who aren't given the opportunity. And in some cases, because they go, I shouldn't have to push as hard as everybody else does. I went to fine schools. I am educated. Why should I, should I not get the same opportunity as others? And unfortunately, race, sexual orientation, uh, gender, it all plays a role in where you end up. And if you don't fight very hard to remove barriers that are put in the way of people um, that, are, that, that have those quote-unquote um, disadvantages, then you're never going to get there. But if you get there, now you're in the room and you can now change the room. And that's what really Black North is there to do. It's not just about promoting and supporting Black Canadians. It's removing the barriers that prevents people from underserved communities to be successful in our society 
And as a result of that, they started to contribute to the betterment of our society, right? It's not, I'm not going to say to anyone, hire this person because they're black, even though they're incapable of doing the job. I'm saying, no, no, I want you to remove the, the barriers in place to prevent a capable person from getting hired to do a job that they're capable of doing. That's all. That's all. Remove the barriers. If they're capable, they'll get, they'll get the job and they'll do a really great job. If they're incapable, they're going to be fired just like all the incapable people that get hired to do a job that they can't do, right? If you hire a person, you know, um, uh, let's say, you know, my organization, I hired a black guy tomorrow and the black guy is incapable of doing the job. Am I going to say, well, I can't fire him because he's black? No, I'm firing him because he's incapable. But I'm also not going to say, I'm not going to hire that person because they're white. It, it, it makes no sense. It holds my business back. And so as much as we can work together to change that conversation, to remove those barriers, I just think Canada is better off for it because I am a perfect example. And those people who have hired that were immigrants are perfect example of what happens when you move the barriers away, of how successful not only your business can be, but the country can be. And with Im immigration just continuing to grow and on that trend, I think it's an even more important initiative. Uh, can you give an example of like what a barrier would be like? And is it something that, you know, Black North is focused on, but is it something that like me or, or someone else that's in an organization, if, they, if they're making a decision to hire someone, can, can, you know, can, is it something that they- I'll give really an example. I was talking to a, a really, really good friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. And he was telling me some of the frustration that he was experiencing and he's black and he's a hiring manager. And he said that there was a hiring committee and he was the only black person on the hiring committee. And there are two candidates that was up. They're engineers and, uh, one engineer is new to Canada from, uh, uh, from Europe and the other engineer is new to Canada from Africa. And, uh, and they, they interviewed both. And then they were, the committee was getting together to talk about which candidate to hire. And somebody piped up to say, well, the, the, the person from Africa, I really, it, it's very hard to understand them. Now they didn't question the person's capability academically or their ability to do the job. What they said was, it was difficult to understand that person. Now that person writes impeccably. Okay. And you got to keep in mind, it's an engineer position. Uh, it's what the, you're hiring their brain, not their accent. And so, so that's what, so the, the person in Africa there, you know, it's hard to understand. And my, the, the, my friend piped up and said, but the person from Europe, I can't understand that person. I none of us can understand them the same way. So why is it that one is disadvantage over the other. And then everybody look around at each other going, that's a good point. Okay. There's, there's a blindness there, blind spot there for those others. And is that because of the bias in terms of where that person came from? And ultimately one of the other person piped up and go, yeah, if we hire the person, if we think, if we're going to hire based on that, we should hire none of them or hire both. But it can't be because of the person's accent, because both of them have 
a very strong accent. So that's what is sometimes is a barrier as, as simple as that. You know, you ever watch a movie and when you watch the movie and you go, man, that person has a beautiful, uh, American accent and, and then you meet them first and they speak with a British accent. Like, I didn't know that guy's British. Like all his movies were in American accent, right? Accent is something you can change, right? When I came to this country, I had this very strong Jamaican accent, very strong. And I talked to people like this, I didn't understand me. I'm like, wait, why can't you understand what I'm saying? I'm speaking English just perfectly fine. They go, I, I, I sorry, man, I can't understand you, bro. Okay. And guess what happens over time? I don't speak like that anymore. Over time, I, I don't. And I can put it on and off when I want to. That's what accents do. But yet, it's a barrier for new Canadians to get jobs in this country. And if we remove those barriers, guess what's going to happen? We're going to find brilliant people. Think about it. If you are sick and you need an operation and you're in India and the doctor comes in and he's speaking with a very strong accent. But ultimately what you heard was, you're going to need an operation right now. Are you going to say, well, that accent, I don't know if that accent is going to be good enough for you to work on me, my friend. You think about the skills that that guy has as a doctor. In fact, the questions that you probably ask is not, you know, why, why is your accent so, so thick? You're going to ask them, how many operations like this have you done? And how successful were they? And then all of a sudden you found out that this man has done a thousand of these operations and every single one of them were successful. Are you going to worry about his accent? No. But those are the things that we put in the way to prevent people from showing their brilliance to us. And, uh, and the work that we all should do is to go, let's remove those artificial barriers because that's what they are. And then we can get the true talent that this person can bring to us. I'd like to circle back to, you mentioned kind of relationships there and like initially like, you know, asking to exchange information and you are a master at like building relationships over the long term. What are some things that you've learned about building relationships for like a longer term doing business within those relationships? Versus, you know, just like kind of like that initial, like, uh, foot in the. So there's one of my first files that I got that was really, you know, I talk about the Falconbridge files, uh, file three years after starting Kingsdale, but back in 2004, which is a year after starting Kingsdale, I met a guy named Ian Telfer and I met Ian Telfer in 2002 when I was at the other firm. Ian Telfer was running this company called Wheaton River Minerals that nobody heard about. It was uh, a prospect mining company that tried to find gold in different places and had to go out and raise money all the time to do it. The market cap at the time was maybe $20 million. It was just tiny. And I remember helping, helping Ian on a deal. And uh, the deal was successful to get stock options approved. And when I started my company in 2003, in 2004, they announced the deal to become bigger, to do a merger. And the merger became a hostile merger. And my firm was hired. There's a whole, you know, it's, it's not that easy. It was, you know, but ultimately our firm, my firm Kingsdale got hired. Ian hired me. And um, 
this was over 20 years ago. I was, uh, Ian has his name on the University of uh, Ottawa Business School, the Telfer School of Business. Ian and I were last week in Ottawa together. Ian and I have dinner together. We have lunches when I'm in Vancouver, we have dinner, breakfast. When he's in Toronto, the same thing. In Ottawa, we hang out, okay? That's a over 20-year relationship that we've had. And Ian is no longer the CEO of the company. He's retired. He's been long retired. But our relationship continues. See, when you build really great relationship with people, it transcends the business interaction that you have with them. Those people, in some cases, become family members of yours. You go to their kid's wedding. They come to your vacation home and stuff like that. It's not, you know, you, you over to build very strong relationships, it can't be transactional. A lot of people look at what can I get from this person right now? And that's how they build a relationship. Like we have a situation whereby our client was told, we were told that the company is going to RF, RS, RFP, which is a request for proposal, uh, our business. It's never happened before, but this company said, we're going to send it out to tender. We're going to get all these people to come in and whoever gives us the best pitch, they're going to get our, our, the mandate. So I sent a note to the CEO. I said, Hey, I thought we had a great relationship. Why would that happen to us? And the CEO responded by saying news to me. And then all of a sudden that process was killed and, uh, we, we have the mandate. The fact of the matter is if we didn't have a strong relationship there, that wouldn't have happened. And so never treat your relationship as transactional. Treat your relationship as something that it's going to be so long-term that that person is always going to want to do business with you. And even if they decide not to do business with you in the future, the relationship should not end. Because if the relationship end because of that, that meant that relationship was always transactional. Always. So we've had business dealings with people who stop using my firm for whatever reason, using our competitor, but we're still friends because it's not a transactional situation. And people remember that. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. I'd like to know what your favorite book is. And if you can't really pick a favorite, maybe just something you're... No Bootstrap When You're Barefoot is my favorite book. <laughs> That's cute. Well, for those in your audience, I wrote that book. That's a book that, uh, and my, my story. The reason why it's my favorite book is because, man, writing that thing was amazing. But no, the uh, uh, current reading is, uh, is cast by Isabel Wilkinson. And it really talks about the history of, um, you know, race and caste and, you know, how it got handed down from generation to generation and kind of give you a sense, a, an understanding as to how the system works and why some people are at the top and why some are at the bottom and the work that people do to get themselves from the bottom to the top. And uh, so that's, uh, that's an interesting book. I, I don't read a lot of business books. I used to. I used to be on the, um, you know, on a, on a committee that actually select uh, business books for Canada. So I read a lot of business books and there's, some of them are great, but ultimately I like to read stuff that are just, you know, motivating people's experiences and how people kind of, you know, get from where they were to where they are, the struggles that they went through to actually get there. That's those stories, you know, 
And so my story in, in No Bootstrap When You're Barefoot is really about that. You know, people read my book. Somebody commented on social media a few days ago saying, I read his book. I really, really enjoyed it, but I still don't know what he does for a living. And the thing is, it doesn't matter what I do for a living. It's that journey that's really exciting, right? It's like starting from, from the bottom, literally in the things shack in rural Jamaica to now be in a room with 700 business leaders and you're the only black person there. Like, tell me, how did that happen? Well, that's the story, right? It doesn't matter what I do for a living, it's that story as to how that happened. And so I love those experiences. I love reading those stories. And anyone, you know, who have those stories, man, put it in writing. Even if nobody's going to publish it, you put it out there, you publish it because it motivates so many people when they read that kind of story. What are you most excited about in the next 12 months personally and professionally? So personally, um, you know, I'm, a lot of the kids are moving out. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to like not having this, all those kids running around. So we have five kids, my wife and I. So, uh, you know, we're going to get a break a little bit. So, so, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, professionally, I have a lot of interesting things that I want to do. Uh, with my business and, and, and deals that I want to do. And I'm excited to see how those develop in the next, uh, you know, 12 months or so. Because when you're dealing with, with, with transactions, for example, the economy is up and down, right? Right now, interest rates are high. Banks aren't loaning money. People are hurting. And then, okay, fine. In 12 months, what is, what's, is it going to be the same? Is it going to be better? You know, if it's going to be lost, lasting longer than that, how can we pivot now to take advantage of some of those opportunities that will present itself as a result of the current dislocation in the market, right? I look at these type of markets as not necessarily a bad thing. It's a, it's just kind of rebalances things a little bit. Things that you couldn't afford a year ago or two years ago, today you can afford them. Because the valuation is not as ridiculous as they were a year ago, right? A year ago, there are some tech companies we wanted to invest in, and we just couldn't because the valuation was out of whack. We're competing with all these people with all kinds of money to throw at those, those businesses. Today, the valuation is down back to earth, and now we can pick and choose what we want. So that's opportunistic. So I look at these markets as really a great opportunity, but to take advantage of those, this market, you have to have liquidity. <laughs> and so that's why you save and you put things aside. They talk, they, you know, and my grandmother used to say, save for a rainy day. This is a rainy day right now in this market, right? Commercial real estate, for example, a couple of years ago, you couldn't rent a place in, you couldn't lease a place in Toronto. Like everything was like hundred percent occupied. And it was very competitive to, since COVID. Nobody wants to go back to work. Commercial real estate is out of favor. You can now negotiate a good lease for the long term. Again, taking advantage of this location in the market. So if we look at the market in general, we can look at it as, wow, this is terrible, this is bad. But you can also look at it to say, how can I take advantage of that? So if you're a tech company, for example, that can't raise capital, well, the money that you're getting today it's a lot more patient capital that you're going to get. So in fact, you're going to get better investors today. People who can actually write things out with you. 
right? Because they're investing in the down market. So they understand what it's like to invest in the down market. So when things are up, they're happy. But when the down market is, it, it, it is back, guess what? They're still there with you. And so that's the opportunity that you can look for when there's this location in the market as an entrepreneur. How do you deal with hard times? Being, being a father is challenging. Starting your own business is, do you do fitness, meditation? Do you have- No, I work out every morning and uh, I do a combination of uh, weights, cardio, yoga, and, uh, and just different, I mix it up a little bit. I've been doing that ever since I, I, I can remember. I remember when I lived outside the city, it used to take me a while to get in if I don't get on the road by 6 a.m. So I used to get up at 4 a.m. And I would work out and then shower, hit the traffic, hit, hit the road so that I don't have to uh, deal with traffic. And that's why I used to be in the office by 7 a.m. in the morning, 6.30, 7 a.m. in the morning because of it. And I did that for at least 15 years. Okay, so think about getting up at four o'clock in the morning that long just so that you can get your workout in. Because what I found, uh, Evan, was my mind gets sharper when I work out. Because when I'm working out, I'm thinking about things while I'm doing it. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, how is my day going to go? How am I going to deal with this particular situation that I'm going to encounter? And then when I get into the office, I have like a three, four hour head start on everybody else in terms of what I'm going to accomplish. So even if I leave the office, I used to be here at like eight, nine o'clock in the evening sometimes. But even if I leave the office at three o'clock, I would have accomplished way more than most people have. Because that, those three hour head start, you can accomplish so much in that period of time because nobody's bothering you. Phone's not ringing, nobody's around. And guess what? I found that high level people, when I sent an email to them that time of morning, immediately they responded to me, immediately. So then I start to learn that, that I go, oh, if I wanna get in touch with this CEO, get in first thing in the morning, send them an email, I always get that communication back and forth. But tell, I tell you, if I send that person an email at 11 o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to get a response back until maybe two or three days later, because they're, now they're getting bombarded by all these people. So I learned those things really, really early. And I find that early risers is a club. Have you ever jogged at uh, 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, jog in, on a trail? Every person that you go by, they say good morning to you when you jog at 5.30, 6 o'clock. All right, if you jog at 9 o'clock in the morning, nobody says hello because it's not special to jog at 9 o'clock in the morning. Anybody can get up, roll out of bed, and I'm going to go for a jog at 9 o'clock. Not everybody can get up at 5.30 in the morning and say, I'm going to go for a jog. So it becomes a special club whereby people acknowledge somebody who is a part of that club just because you're jogging. And I can tell you, I've built a lot of relationships by me jogging in the morning. And then I'm walking down Bay Street and somebody says, hey, I saw you this morning. Uh, oh, you're the guy on the trail. And then they go, oh yeah. And then all of a sudden, well, I'm the CEO of such and such. We built a relationship as a result of that, right? Little things like that is, you know, habits is absolutely important. But for me, I do it because of my mental, mental health. It just makes me feel better. You know, it makes me, 
you know, behave better. It makes me deal with the stresses of my job better. And, uh, and I just kept doing it and I will continue to do it hopefully until the day I die. I love that. Wes, to wrap it up, I always open up the mic to my guests. Sometimes they chat about their business or some initiatives they're working on, or maybe their view on the Canadian business market. Uh, uh, just up to you to chat about anything, a little bit of an open mic. Yeah, Evan, there's, there's two up. things that, that are close to my heart. Because, because I came from poverty, I understand what it's like to, to be in poverty. And it's not a fun place. You know, we're doing a, uh, a campaign right now to help the African refugees that, uh, that came here, that unfortunately came to Canada and they came to Toronto and there are no shelters for them and they're on the sidewalks. You know, to me, that, that broke my heart because as Canadian, we're better than that. Look, we're better than that. We're more hospitable. You know, when we go around the world and people identify us as Canadians, they're happy because they know we're nice people. And, um, and when stuff like that happens and the world media report that, it makes us all look bad. Doesn't matter what we look like. When that's happening in our backyard, in one of the most prosperous countries in the world, it makes us all look bad. So through the Black North Initiative and so many others in the Black community, we took those people off the street and we're looking after them. In fact, it's costing Black North $50,000 a month to look after those, those refugees. And every day there are more coming, okay? So what happens is the government let these folks in and it's great that they're doing that, but it's very difficult when you have no plan once those people come into the country. It makes us look bad. It makes us all look bad. So to me, you know, I'm a builder. And uh, whether or not I'm building my company, I'm building my city, or I'm building the country, I'm a builder. A builder makes things better. That's what they do. They make things better. And so when I see things like these, I go, we have to do something. And we have to make sure that these people, they appreciate what this country did for them. It's almost like, you know, you invite someone to come to your house, Evan, and, and they show up and you go, you know what? Thank you for coming, but you can stay on the sidewalk. How much, how, will they appreciate you for that invitation? Initially, when you offer them, yeah, but once they realize that they're only going to be in front of your house on the sidewalk and that's where they're going to stay. And by the way, every now and then, I'm going to bring some food out for you and you're going to eat it on the sidewalk. That's not very hospitable. And so we need to change that. We have to integrate immigrants into our society better. A lot of these people are running away from trauma that they're experiencing back home. A lot of these people are very smart people. A lot of these people can't wait to contribute to our society, to make it better, to show their appreciation for what we've done for them. And I'm just saying, let them do that. Let them, give them the opportunity to say thank you. And the only thing that they want from us is a job, kindness, empathy. And if we can give them those things, they will forever be grateful for what Canada did for them. I love that, Wes. Really appreciate that. Uh, today was a lot of fun. Thanks My pleasure. Thanks for coming on, sharing your time with me. And uh, Thanks, Evan. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it.
you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.